Welcome to Creative Bones, a podcast exploring what it means to be creative. I'm your host, Trish Johnston, a seasoned graphic designer of over 20 years and the creative director of my studio, Oathenstone. I'm on a mission to understand creativity more. Are we born with it? Is it our environment? Or is it something that we can learn to be? I want to understand this crucial component of my craft better and how it impacts our ability to problem solve and make decisions. At the end of my life, I want to know that I've left my best creative ideas behind. So whether you've got a creative bone in your body, or maybe none at all, join me as I have conversations with experts, mentors, colleagues, and friends across a number of fields, asking them about their version of creativity. Meet Louise Morris. She's a rare third-generation bird born of both law and property, and you'll soon understand why she's been awarded in both these areas of practice. She's an experienced, trusted lawyer and business owner as principal and director of Morris Legal Group, but she's also an advisor, a community advocate, and the only Canberra-based property and construction lawyer who also has hands-on experience developing large-scale, mixed-use, commercial and residential developments. More casually, I've known Louise since we were buying carob buds at the girls' grammar tuck shop. She's an original client of our studio, one of my fiercest champions in business, and we found such a mutually enjoyable friendship as our professional lives have blossomed and intertwined over the last 20 years. You'll hear us talk about Louise's push for change in the legal industry, embracing digital transformation and challenging traditional practices such as billable hours, time recording and unlimited leave. She shares her thoughts on the importance of creativity within the practice and interpretation of law and her experience in sharing and building knowledge with her peers. When she's not doing deals, Louise is active in promoting Canberra on the national stage, as well as supporting community, the arts and sport through Lifeline Canberra, Salon Canberra and by sponsoring ACT-based professional athletes to compete internationally. If we didn't love her enough already, Louise is an avid hand knitter and sewist, and wait for it, a registered amateur kickboxing referee. She's also restoring a mid-century modern home in the world's longest and most dramatic renovation of all time. Please enjoy my chat with Louise Morris. You to be the first one to kick off because we had a conversation over lunch a little while ago and you asked me where I get my creative ideas from and I couldn't answer you and it stuck with me all the way home. I was driving home in the car and I was like, just I can't answer it and I just I just do it and much like I think you do with your work. So I wanted to have this conversation first up to be like, right, where has this started from? Why did you ask me that question? What have you observed about my work that made you ask that question? And also seeing how creativity works in the law and in your work. And I think you're a very creative person, but maybe the law isn't something that typically people go, oh yeah, they're all creative people. And sometimes it's, you're not really meant to be creative in certain situations. So maybe if I, I could start by asking, what prompted you to ask me that question? Sure. Um, the thing that prompted me to ask that question was actually a curiosity about how your brain works differently from my brain. And that is really interesting to me. On a number of levels, I think we all are used to how our brain works. I started noticing our own brain, I mean, 
And I started noticing that while I consider myself, yes, I consider myself quite creative and a good thinker and smart, I suppose, you have a way of bringing to life ideas that I can barely articulate. And yet when we're having a discussion and I'm briefing you about the thing that I need for my business, I have an idea about what I wanted to make me feel or what feeling I wanted to inspire in other people when they see it. And you produce that with the inputs that I give you in a way that I don't understand. And so I think my question at the time, I didn't understand as much as I do now about creativity in different areas of knowledge work and understanding things like the neuroscience of creativity and things like that. I was trying to work out how your brain works and how I can give you these abstract things. And what you said to me was your brain starts to give you colors and shapes and it just all forms for you. And that's when I realized that everyone's creative, but the way our brains produce things and ideas is different. That's to be valued in everyone. But it inspired such curiosity in me as to how I could say, I need a website that makes people feel this about hiring a lawyer. And you produced a thing that did exactly that. It had exactly that effect with what I would consider to be very poor briefing. I couldn't give you the pictures that I wanted. I couldn't give you the colors that I wanted. But I, I said, it's got to make you feel like you feel when you see this. And that's what our brand does. And it's really it's just, yes, it just inspires such curiosity in me. Yeah. And I'm so grateful you asked that because I think you need people in your life who maybe when you've been cruising for a little while or you've been, you know, we've been doing our profession for the same amount of time. We're on school chums and we've grown in our professions now. But I think it's very easy to just say for you, I've seen you knock up a, a contract the same way that I do a logo and that inspires curiosity in me. But um, I'm grateful that you asked that question because I couldn't stop thinking about the whole drive home. I was like, oh, I don't think that's normal. Like how I explained to you, I just, I guess, colours and fonts and ideas just come to me and it's just how my brain works. I was like, oh, I don't think that's normal. Well, what's interesting, though, is that when people come to me with a scenario or a legal problem, those same sort of swirling thoughts and concepts come to me and it's not that I come up with the exact answer or the structure of documents or the solution in that sitting, but the way you describe what happens in your brain and how these ideas and things get presented to you from the, you know, musty innards of your subconscious to create, in my case, the feeling that I wanted people to feel when they saw my thing. It, it's sort of the same they sort of swirl into view in the same way that you describe colours and shapes and fonts swirling into view in your mind's eye. It's really, It was really fascinating for me. Yeah, Isn't that funny that I think that happens for a lot of people in terms of being inspired or even songwriters or even accountants with basic problem solving, but it's not labelled as creativity. It's mm. labelled as problem solving. Mm. But I think even with the passion that you just spoke about, how everything just starts swirling and, and you might go off on a tangent here and you're thinking of all these different options, I think that's extremely creative. But the whole point of, of doing these interviews and this podcast series is to understand why, say, artists and musicians and um, writers and poets are big C creatives, but then a lawyer, an accountant, a plumber and a chiropractor aren't 
put in that same box. And yet I think the thinking and the creativity across everyone, I think that everyone is creative. So um, I wonder in your profession, are there people that come to mind, like your colleagues who you would say are creative or is it, it's not really a word that's flung around? I, I think the challenge is that lawyers and accountants, and if you pair the words creative and accounting together, it's got a flavour, which which is not very complimentary. So I think that, yes, I, I agree. It's interesting that, you know, and let's juxtapose the graphic designer with the lawyer. So you're a graphic designer. You are considered to be in a creative field because you produce pretty things. And, you know, that's, you know. Um, a highly simplified version of describing what you do. Um, I think the most obvious in the Australian legal system, the most obvious example of creativity in legal thinking arrives in, for example, progressive high courts where you have the big legal thinkers of the time looking at big legal documents like the Constitution and deciding whether it is appropriate that we read into it more progressive ideas and bring the law in line with current societal values. For the law nerds listening, the Mason High Court immediately springs to mind as a court which was progressive but thought creatively about how it would justify progressing jurisprudence beyond the deep early 1900s ideas that are presented in the constitution and in certain parts of the common law and also legislation. But what I would say about that is that the Mason High Court, and you've you've got favourites everywhere, so Justice Kirby's one of my favourites, of course. You don't often talk about lawyers having opportunities to be creative or being recognised for creativity in the course of practising law. But I do think that it is central to the practice of law, um, especially when you're dealing with slow thinking types of legal practice. So uh, again, there's there's fast thinking fast and slow, um, but and the idea that some decisions and some knowledge workers work in an environment where they need to make quick decisions, they need to process certain data quickly, and that is the nature of their knowledge work. And then there's the idea that there's slow thinking, which is larger problem-solving type work. Problem-solving, I think, requires a high level of creativity. Even if you're solving problems in a formulaic manner, you still need the creativity to draw upon them, think about the problem broadly, think about the outcomes, and to be able to put the solution together. I do think it's unfair, I think, on a lot of knowledge workers. You've named a lot of them accountants, lawyers, engineers, you know, engineers, engineers and architects. It's easy for us to juxtapose the creativity of a graphic designer or the expectation of creativity from a graphic designer with the lack of expectation of creativity from a lawyer. But the interesting thing about architects who are typically expected to be creative and engineers who are not considered especially creative, I think, working in the same industry on the same problems side by side. Before I was a lawyer, I was in the property industry and I had a lot to do with construction property development. And the creativity required of engineers to solve big problems like how do we hold up a building when the architect has told us that we can't put a column there to hold up the building? There's a big joke about we'll get skyhooks, but of course, you know, you, you need you need to sometimes you need to cantilever the building. And how do you do that? How do you do it safely? How do you make it look beautiful? There is a huge amount of creativity required of engineers. I'm picking on structural engineers in this case, but a huge amount of creativity required of engineers to achieve 
the vision of an architect or, or a developer, which I think they're simply not credited for. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting you say that because that's a question that I'm asking all of my guests about the pressure that they feel in their industries to be creative. So I feel immense pressure to be creative. It's, it's a KPI of my industry. If I'm not a creative graphic designer, I'm just a gal with a box of crayons and even then might not use them to their full ability. Do you feel pressure in your field to be creative? Um, Oh, that's an interesting question because I probably don't feel pressure to be creative. But I think the problem is that in my particular area of practice and in my business, if I'm not creative, it's not that people call me out for it, but I won't be as good a lawyer as I am. And my business won't be as good a business as it is if I'm not creative. So it's almost this insidious lack of expectation of creativity that can really stymie a knowledge worker. We should be celebrating and noticing creativity because it's not, as as you've suggested, a big C creative type of work. There's probably not overt pressure to be creative, but the lack of creativity drastically changes how good of a knowledge worker you are when you're not a big C creative. Um, it's almost like if you were advertising for a position at your firm, you would say ability to think on your feet, ability to work with other people, bring new ideas to the table. Yeah. But it is that small C creative rather than uh, you must be a creative person to work in this job. Yes, a creative thinker versus a creative person. That's a really interesting distinction. I don't think I would yeah. ever advertise for a solicitor to join our firm who's a, I would potentially advertise for someone who has a propensity for creative thinking, but I wouldn't be saying, we're looking for a super creative person to join our progressive, innovative team. We talk about progressiveness and innovation as a business and for me as a principal. But yeah, we, we wouldn't go out looking for a creative person. But I think about our team and I think actually the, the creative people, and we do have a few of them, they're, they're the best. They're the thinkers. They're the top problem solvers. And maybe that's, that's and maybe that comes back to the idea about what's creative or what you define as creativity. And I've been thinking about this a little bit when you contacted me about coming on the podcast. I was really anxious because I couldn't explain why lawyers are creative, small c creative, and how do we compare to creative roles or creative knowledge workers. But since our discussion that day about the swirling colours and logos, and especially since you've birthed this beautiful podcast, (laughs) I've sort of realised that actually it's about what we consider to be creativity and how it arrives. So I, I think that regardless of what it's that, uh, that idea of the swirling and the and you can't force it. You can't sit down and say, right, we need a creative solution to this, in my case, a legal problem or in your case, a branding brief. Sometimes the swirling is happening, but it, I, 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 will, I will admit that I have had complex matters come to me and I know the answer's there and I'm very embarrassed that it takes me days or weeks and in one case the word months ought to be used although not a many not not many many months and I knew the answer was there it was sort of available to me but I couldn't distill it down into the final product or the final solution and often the solution this creativity it arrives and you oh that's the answer and I'm embarrassed and we, I think we've talked about this in your case when you're developing a suite of logos for people to choose from. 
I'll sit down and go, oh, I've got the answer now. I sit down and I draft a very complex set of documents in a matter of a day or a few days or a week. But I could not have done that week's worth of difficult work at the beginning of the creative process because I needed the time for the information to percolate and for the solution to come to me. Yeah. Um, and I have heard you speak of, you know, doing logos in the same way. You sit down, you, you're like, I know the brief, I know the client, I know the product. I'm ready to put some really good logos down. And sometimes it's that, oh, what about this? And it's that last thing that you try and you go, oh, look, I'll chuck that in and see what they say. And it's that final one that just comes to you and feels right that really resonates with the client. And you go, how, how, come, how come is it that you sit there and slave over the problem and force the solution and then the one that comes to you at the last minute is the one that sticks, is the one that fits the brief the best? We had a similar situation where I was a bit stuck on a logo and I showed it to Elle and she goes, why don't you make it italic? It was like one word, make it italic. And I did it and I was like, ah. it was just that, like the weirdest, smallest little tweak. And like he's done as well, he'll walk in and go, make that blue. And it changes the whole thing. Mm. And I've been staring at this. But I think what it comes back to and what I realised in my research is that Part of the creative process includes incubation time. Interesting. So, and we were talking about the Huberman podcast that we loved about dopamine receptors in the brain and the, the chemicals that are going on in times of creativity. There are times where you literally have to lie down and close your eyes and do nothing. We need to walk away from a problem. We need to have a sleep or I do my best thinking in the shower. Mm. So it's that incubation time plus collaboration. But I really liked what you said before, just going back to about the difference between a creative person and creative thinking. Because I think what you just described in terms of you sit down, you're like, right, be creative now. And it never Yeah, happens. it doesn't happen. It doesn't you can't happen. force it. Whereas I think if you are, um, I think creative people are creative thinkers. But maybe would you say creative thinkers are not? necessarily creative people or are they all one in the same and we haven't acknowledged that everyone has an element of creativity to them? I think I'm not an anthropologist, but I'd suggest that the evolution of the human race would suggest that we are innately creative because we're toolmakers, we're social innovators. We can we can thrive in inhospitable environments because we have the ability to critically and creatively Think. There's lots of information and studies about the diminution of creativity over time. So children are hugely creative and can solve complex problems, sometimes on a trial and error basis, sometimes almost intuitively, but the capacity for creative thinking changes over time, particularly as you acquire more education and your, your mode of thinking is more attuned to a particular kind of subject matter, I suppose. Um, I think that there are people that will say, oh, I'm not a creative person because they don't paint or knit. So I think I think because of my hobbies, I'm considered to I, my friends, both of them, hi guys, um, <laughs> will we'll say, oh, yes, Louise is a creative person because she knits and she paints and she's interested in sewing and crafts and the arts. But I, I think that just because you don't have a creative bone in your body just because you don't love a bit of crochet on the weekends doesn't mean yeah. you don't have the capacity for creative thinking. I think creativity comes, at, and it's interesting what you say about the incubation and the collaboration. If we consider that creativity is nothing more than a, an inspired thought that arrives to solve a problem in a spontaneous manner or in a manner that seems spontaneous to you, 
And that's the moment of creativity. That's really simple and everyone is capable of that. And I think the other thing is that creative people are either trained to or have not, haven't had it trained out of them to notice when creativity occurs and that, that dopamine that you get when you go, that's the answer, that I've got it. I, I think that in creative fields, talking about knowledge workers, in, in creative fields you are taught to notice or you haven't been untaught to notice those creative moments. Lawyers, we will think on a problem and arrive at the solution or a good argument. So when you're trying to think on what is the situation, what could the situation be, how might you characterise these different ideas from a factual standpoint, from a legal standpoint, how do you discover the facts and then interpret them within a legal framework, that takes a lot of problem solving. I don't think we're taught necessarily or we are untaught perhaps to notice that when you find that connection between the facts and the legal position, we're not taught to notice that dopamine. We're not taught or we're not, we, we, we've been untaught that, oh, that's the moment of creativity because it's not, we're not considered a creative field. But I think it is really important. That spontaneous inspirational moment of problem solving is critical to a lot of knowledge work. Well, that was a great segue into my next question because of what you said about the grey area of the law. I think we're taught primarily the law is about right and wrong and and maintaining order in society. But we're taught murder, bad, stealing, bad, killing someone in self-defence, maybe not so bad, stealing a loaf of bread to feed your hungry family, kind of get it. So I think there's that interpretation of the law. Yes, you killed that person, but they were also trying to kill you. So maybe we won't send you to jail for the rest of your life. Maybe we understand where you're coming from. So do you think that in that interpretation of the law, there are some things that are right and wrong, black and white, or do you think it's all grey and the creative thinking comes into that interpretation of the law and maybe... It got me thinking when you were talking about this before, when COVID happened and we were working very quickly on your collateral and we had signs and we had new procedures and you were talking about slow and fast thinking, adapting to a modern time. I think that's particularly creative, but I think in interpretation of the law, creative thinking is just so important. Mm. Yeah. Um, I think it's important for lawyers to remember, and it it may not be obvious to non-lawyers, that the legal system is just that, it is a system. So in several respects, the law, the rules and morality don't necessarily align. Because I'm, I'm also trying to work out whether creative people can think on their feet better than people who maybe don't recognise that they don't call themselves creative. Interesting, yeah. So do you think when COVID hit and we had to make changes really fast and things were changing every day, every week, and we were updating fact sheets and we were introducing your clients to different concepts about e-signing and everything. Were you just on fire in that space in terms of thinking on your feet? Oh, I'm great in a crisis, Trish. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think what's interesting about that is that sometimes when you're in a time-pressured situation, I had to consume a huge amount of material in a short amount of time to understand the changing requirements. I think something that really supported me to make the quick decisions, the quick changes, is that in the two years preceding COVID, I had actually done a huge body of work on electronic conveyancing, electronic signing, the 
bindingness and legality of certain digital transactions in a paper-based jurisdiction like the ACT. So unfairly, I was pre-primed for COVID. We had already been advocating quietly, but directly with our other colleagues in the ACT legal profession to make conveyancing more digital, more accessible, more sensible, I think, in the context of, you know, the changing digital world and the need to consider easier and more certain ways to transact. So it may have looked like I reacted very quickly and very proficiently, but the thing is that I had already spent a lot of time doing my slow thinking on that. We had drafted contracts which catered to electronic signing and exchange and and had special conditions in it which dealt with maybe shortcomings or or dealt with some of the things that that the ACT didn't do well that other jurisdictions did do well. New South Wales is a good example. They they were quite uh, digital forward maybe is a good way to describe them. So I had been quietly but admittedly persistently advocating for changes to how practitioners do electronic conveyancing. So those con- those conditions that I drafted started showing up in other people's contracts in COVID. I had practitioners call me and say, I know you've been asking me to see it your way for a while now, but I really need to get across it because we're in lockdown. I can't go and do an exchange and I'm, I'm very proud to say that actually while, and lawyers can tend to be a little bit once you know how to do it and you're sure that it works, you want to do it that way. I am very proud that even very deeply experienced practitioners in my profession sort of said to me after, oh God, I know, I know you've been sort of asking me to do this for years, but it's not that hard actually. I was quite apprehensive about it all, but it's quite fine. And I think the thing is that I'd already done the slow thinking. I'd done my creativity already. And what I was doing was the fast thinking aspect of it saying, oh, we have a calamity that requires everyone to perform in this way that I've devised. Let's implement it. Not for this one instance where we've been slowly, slowly talking to other people and testing whether it's possible. We need to do it immediately everywhere. Um, I I know you're another good example. Um, You were working flexibly and remote and doing a lot of that innovation in innovative ways of doing work for your clients already. So you only needed to adjust a little bit. Don't use the word pivot. (laughs) But you do need to pivot as hard. I don't think I needed to pivot as hard as other people did. So I actually found that during COVID... I saw people adjacent to me or small business colleagues were really adapting the coffee shops who were doing deliveries or having an app and having contact-free pickup or beauty salons who were packing up eyebrow tinting kits and having it delivered to your doorstep so you could do it yourself and then making videos to show you how to do it. And I really felt like I wasn't doing any of that. And I was like, I need to have a course. I need to do a video. I need to do this. And I was talking to someone and said, but you're already, like you said, I was already working remotely. I was already delivering work remotely and I didn't have to innovate to survive. Yeah. And I think very similar in your situation, you, you could still do the work. You just had to flick that last little switch that had been the slow burn leading up to it. Mm. And then Work was fairly normal because it's a new normal, but it was uh, fairly uh, comfortable after that. Like mm. you said to me a number of times, we were born for this. Mm. I think you'd seen that on a wall somewhere and it stuck with you, mm. a bit of um, uh, street art. Um, 
I'd love if you could tell me more about the things that you do in your firm that are different to other firms, because I know that when we first started talking about the branding and, and we had a discussion about, we need to make you, you are different. We need to make you look different, but we also need to maintain credibility that Mm -hmm. you're not running a business out of a wood panel station wagon in the rain in a back alley. You know, you, you're a, a real lawyer, but you're different. I often say I'm a Clayton's lawyer. I'm the lawyer you're having when you're not having a lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's a bit, it's, it's sad that the joke doesn't land anymore. Some of my clients do like the joke, mm. but it just shows their age, unfortunately. Um, so beyond the creative thinking that we've talked about and at, at a very commercial approach to clients and a personable approach, which is appreciated. And I think that's where the Clayton's lawyer joke hits the hardest because I'm not in a suit in a black and white office. I, I am very personable. I, I work in an area of law which requires me to speak to real people about real problems and find solutions and explain those solutions in a, in a way that they can understand and appreciate. So there there is a subject matter aspect to that. And I, I'm very proud to have a practice where I it is acceptable for me to be approachable and use some earthy language from time to time and to explain things in layman's terms. Like there is an expectation, I think, beyond the no expectation of creativity that lawyers conduct themselves in a certain way and it's very proper. And I have clients who are scared to come to a lawyer with a problem because they feel like they're going to the principal's office. So part of our innovation has been to make going to a lawyer approachable and comfortable. And you see that in the in the beautiful designs that you produce. You see it in our office. You know, there's there's armchairs and there's there's more plants than there are people. You know, there's tea and coffee. Well, actually, not not a great coffee selection, frankly, because the tea selection is yeah obscene. <laughs> um, and I had to be called out by a colleague, like, "How many kinds of tea do you need?" And I'm like, "At least one more, Miss Swan." Like, yeah. it's just it's there's a wall of tea in the in our refreshments. The tea now. budget is a priority on it is a priority it line item. <laughs> Um, but that also, I think goes to another innovation that we've implemented and that's about honoring the people who come through the door. I think that personable and real approach to legal services and, and our approach to sharing knowledge, building knowledge is our, is our overarching sort of goal is to build knowledge. So we're real with people about what information they need and what decisions they have to take and what they need to do for us in order for us to do a good job for them. And I think that's deeply appreciated. We are not, we, we don't consider ourselves guardians of legal knowledge. We consider ourselves custodians of it. We're here to educate people so that they can get the most out of their legal experience. But beyond that, the other people that walk through the door are our staff and the, the, tea, the tea budget is part of that. But another aspect of that is um, our terms of engagement for our staff. So I've recognized one of my goals and I recognized early on that longevity of service of a team to a particular business is key to happiness. It's key to profitability of a business. And so, yes, I'm proud to say that we spend more on our staff than many law firms. Things like we are generous with staff amenities and that didn't change during COVID. We have additional leave for staff. So, after a certain period of service, you accrue a week's extra leave. The idea was to progress to unlimited leave. And, and I think, again, the studies show that unlimited leave uh, policies demonstrate that people take five to six weeks off in a year. And that's about what our staff take. So, 
I was going to ask, what do you mean by unlimited leave? Yeah, like, so there are there are firms or there are businesses around the world that state that there is no limit to the leave you can take, but the the key measure of whether you've taken too much leave is if you can meet certain KPIs, you see. So the idea is that the employer doesn't police how many weeks of the year you work as long as you meet your budget, you can, mm. whatever that KPI is. So uh, after a certain length of service, an additional week, so everyone gets their usual four weeks. After three years of service, there's an additional week accrued. And as soon as you're out of your probation period, you get your birthday off. And it's little things yeah. like that that really, you know, because people get excited about birthday leave. Um, it's just such a small thing. And, you know, people don't, sometimes people don't take their birthday off. They take an extra day that month to go and see their family to stay for their birthday or to host yeah. people or throw a party for themselves. You know, it's little things like that, that I, I do think matter and doesn't sound like a lot, but it, I do, I do think it matters. We also have a superannuation policy, which sees our superannuation match the AC government superannuation policy. So uh, we've also accelerated the mandatory employer superannuation contributions by a half percent per year ahead of the mandatory. So our team are accruing more employer contributions than they would somewhere else. We also, for any staff that are taking extended periods of leave, even if they're casual staff members. So we've got we've got guys who work for us who are casual but have been they're part of the furniture. So if you're taking extended period of leave, even if you run out of leave, and even if you're a casual, we will still pay your super when you're away. And I think that really goes to the big one, of course, is when there's a lot of women in the law and taking extended periods of leave for having a baby, regardless of whether it's paid maternity leave or paid parental leave rather or not, having that super protected and having super being paid by the employer during a period of absence to protect the future value of that superannuation is hugely important. And I think it's important that I as a business invest in my team Far beyond. That has no direct benefit to me now. It's only cost to me, but the value to my team of that extra super and, and the super cover during extended absences gives them so much wealth over a 20, 30, 40, for some of them, 50-year timeline. Mm-hmm. It, it is hugely valuable and it's something that I've decided that it's worth innovating towards mm-hmm. because we, we don't, there isn't enough super. There's something to be said for taking the pressure off staff in terms of they making them feel like they can just come to work and do their job yeah. instead of, oh, I'm sick, which means I've got to go to the doctor and we have to have time off. I'm not going to get super. Or I've got to have a baby and, you know, yeah. all this. If you can come to work with that alleviated yeah. and just relish in doing your job, totally. I think that, that the value that you see on a daily basis, like, you know, your team is... I love your team. I'm, oh, we've got a really sticky team. We've got the, the talk about after three years, you get extra leave. Like I have, I have, I think more than half of my staff are on the, the, the extra leave. Yeah. We've got a huge proportion of our staff that's been with us for more than three years. Um, it's, it's not just that though. I mean, we've been, we've been hundred percent flexible since day one. So yeah. when COVID hit, we were like, oh, well, put our laptops in our bag and just work from home. Just like, Yesterday, there is a culture in our firm that if you've got to go and pick up the kids and then pick up what you're doing when you get home, when you set them up with Bluey and a biscuit, 
that's absolutely acceptable. Yeah. I only, my concern primarily is that targets are, I don't even care if targets are met, to be frank. If you're, if you're within QE of the target, your financial target, and I'm not getting calls from clients complaining that our work is terrible. In fact, it's the opposite. We have a 360 feedback process and we ask every client how their experience was. And so we know that we do good work. We know that having flexible work and happier people means that our clients' needs are met with a smile. The work is done in the time that our staff can do it and it's it's done you know, Why not? Yeah, it's done. It's done joyfully. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's um, especially something, I guess, in your leadership style, which is extremely creative, how you see, well, the rest of the industry is doing this. Let's maybe not do the complete opposite, but why not? Mm. You know, and you've got to have, you got to have a bit of, you, you, you have to not be too scared of being creative. I, like, so when I was in the construction industry, no one bills on a time basis. You know, you bill, you're billing, you, 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 the cost of services is based on value or a product or an outcome. So having been in law before and then went to industry and then saw how things were priced and then coming back to law and thinking, oh, it's been seven years, you know, people won't still be time recording and getting the shock of my life. You have to decide how much your time is worth when, you know, your years of experience might mean that that slow thinking has been done and you can come up with a solution relatively quickly. And the example I often would use is that I could solve a problem in a five or a 10 minute phone call and save someone 500 grand, but I could only bill them $50. Like that doesn't make a lot of sense. It's taken you 20 years to be able to do it in five or 10 minutes. Yeah, exactly. So why should you be penalized for your skills? It's very similar thing in the industry, um, in graphic design, where when I was a junior at uni, I'd be doing assignments for six weeks and I'd mm. come with one logo and one idea at the end mm. of it. And now I can do a logo much faster than that, yeah. but I, I've built my creative skills and, but I do need that incubation time to, mm. uh, designing the logo might take me five hours, mm. but it's over a, a space of 40 hours that I've looked at it and I've yeah. considered options and I've walked away and I've talked to friends and colleagues and, and, mm incubated it and collaborated it. Um, so yeah, very similar thing in our industry with it. Um, I wonder whether we've been talking about things that you do differently. Um, one of my last questions to you, what's something that you see the opportunity to shake up in your field or something that you you're currently working on, or you want to shake up what needs to change? So this is really interesting because we have the strategic discussions within my team. And one of the things that's always on that list is what are we innovating? What are we, we're not stagnating when you create solutions for what's the next thing that we're innovating and what's been really difficult. There's, it's almost like law is a bit of a two speed test of innovation. There's this, it's two speed profession. There are people who are like on the leading edge and doing the things that we're, we're doing or we aspire to do, really flexible arrangements for staff, you know, using technology to augment the human parts of the law. Because I don't think, and this is not time to talk about AI, we don't have enough time to talk about AI. I know it's impacting your field. Well, chat GPT can pass the bar, so why do I need a lawyer? Yeah, it's... Yeah, pass the it's, bar with an asterisk. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's... <laughs> mm, um, we need a whole other episode for that. Um, 
but what's interesting is that there are there are people who, yeah that they're doing fixed fee these firms are doing fixed fee they're doing tech augmented legal practice they're they've got really progressive approaches to team building retention and remuneration things like that and thinking broadly about the law and how the law fits into society and what the lawyer's purpose is. So, you know, shockingly, one of my innovations, and I've realized this in innovation, is that many lawyers are there to serve their own purposes, not to actually help people. The law is a helping profession. Um, I would prefer for people not to need me. Mm. Unfortunately, I have much work to do. It, it would be better in a lot of senses if lawyers weren't involved and, and that because you know, there is a sector of the legal profession that benefits greatly from deeply complex problems, which they can explore that gray area at someone else's cost. It's a really interesting part of our Mm. profession, which is important because that's how legal thinking progresses and the innovation and creativity legal thought, that's that's where a lot of that happens. But, you know, sometimes it's really self-serving. It's really difficult. So there's that part of the profession that is really progressive, really innovative and we're all talking about the same things. Then there's an, a, a big part of the of the legal profession that is still doing things on paper, that's still time recording, that still treats their junior staff like expendable. Mm-hmm. The challenge for me actually is saying that it's actually for me to sit in these innovations which which work. Fixed fee pricing is a really good example. It absolutely works. What it does is it puts a value on our services. It provides absolute clarity for our clients about what the legal services are going to cost before they embark on the process. No surprises. They can determine ahead of time whether they can afford it or not. They don't find themselves in a situation where they have to finish, but it's sending them broke. So there's, that's, that's a great aspect to, to it. I can plan my business's capacity as well because I can see what work I have and how much it will cost me to produce and what revenue is going to bring in. So from a business planning perspective, it works wonderfully. And for my staff, for the team, they don't have to time record. Time recording is like the most toxic kind of journaling you've ever heard of. You're always doubting whether you should have spent that long or what did I do today? I forgot about this thing. But then you go back to the question of, is it the best way to value legal services? Because some things that don't have a high value are very expensive to produce. Should we be selling that? Should we be passing on the cost to the client? There are other things that are inexpensive for us to produce in the moment, but because as you've said, it depends on or relies upon 20 years of experience of the principal practitioner to say, no, that's the solution. Let's go and do that. And that the time in that day that it costs me to produce that that solution and the fact that you need someone with that amount of experience to know that that's a solution or to, mm-hmm. to sell the solution. Do you um, think that taking almost like we were talking with your staff before about their leave and the conditions of working in an office where you've taken away the pressure of the logistics, mm-hmm. do you think that taking away time recording allows you to sit in that incubation space and instead of watching the clock, yeah. it allows you to go, I need to think on this a bit more because I know the answer's there. It's on the tip of my tongue. Do you think that that makes you a better lawyer because you have that time within a scope to sit and think creatively? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Jocelyn Glyde, who has the Hurry Slowly podcast, some of her early episodes were really informative about creativity and delivering outcomes for knowledge workers that Sometimes it's going to take as long as it's going to take to Mm -hmm. produce the work 
that you're happy to put your name against. And it's going to take some people longer than others to produce that same quality product or outcome. It can also take you longer sometimes than others. And the way that Jocelyn and her guests speak about this concept is that when you put a time limit on something, you limit your creativity. You mm-hmm. limit the available resources. You have you bring a scarcity mindset to it rather than an abundance mindset. And as a lawyer, when you're sitting there thinking, oh my God, it's taken me, I'm embarrassed that it's taken me four hours to sit here and just like grind out a solution. Mm-hmm. As the creative thinker, that casts doubt into your mind about whether you can do it or should do it. It doesn't give you the space to get the outcome. We're already not considered to be particularly creative. You don't need the added pressure of time. Mm. Mm. So my my last question to you, and we've had this conversation before about the legacy that you want to leave and what you want to be remembered for. And it was a really uncomfortable question for you, I think, about Mm. at the end of your life, what do you want to be remembered for? And I wonder what you've said to me about really leading by example with your firm in terms of creative thinking and the opportunities you give your staff to sit in that moment, like you just said. So I wonder after this whole conversation that we've had and about the benefits of being a creative thinker or a creative person as a lawyer, what do you want to be remembered for in terms of your work and your creativity? Uh, I don't think I... Uh, who's going to remember me, hopefully? I'll remember you and your two friends who are listening to the podcast. Hey, guys. <laughs> um, this is the thing. I, I don't want to be renowned beyond my community. I'm, I'm, I'm grateful and flattered and I uh, feel quite self-conscious sometimes that when people say, oh, yes, I, I've seen your work or I've heard about you. Why is that? Why does it make you feel uncomfortable? Because I don't want to be noticed. It's 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 mm. odd. Uh, we have this conversation <laughs> at our gym as well. Our gym is this great community. It's a martial arts gym, but because I'm just there to do my thing, get in, get out. Not don't make don't make ripples, don't make a fuss. I'm there to learn, there to get my workout in. I'm there to drink it in a little bit because it's completely different to what I do day to day. And it was sort of this shocking thing when people started because you meet you meet people at gym introduce yourself and you know it's a shocking thing when people go oh louise hi and i'm like oh my god like you know, see my name. Me. you know who i am oh my god people can see me so there's this this joke amongst us that i'm like oh my goodness they can see me the, the guy's like yes everyone can see you louise you're here twice a day everyone knows who you are so that i don't want to be invisible that's not it it's that I don't want to be of such consequence. It's hard to explain, perhaps to answer your question. I want to do good work for good people. I want to help people's lives be better. But ultimately, I want to tread lightly upon the earth. And when I'm gone and the people who knew me are gone, I'm also gone. When you say that, it makes me think of just a breeze flowing through the world and maybe kicking up a, a couple of leaves along the way and Mm. you know brushing past a chime hanging on someone's house and it's almost like a whisper of a an existence that is still quite influential in the world you know it does have the wind does have an effect on the leaves and the chimes and everything but it's almost here and then it's gone but it's Mm. had an effect and I think every time we speak about this it reminds me of the presence that you will have in the world but I mean I'm not here to change your mind I think you've described it very eloquently in the way that you want to tread on the earth. But I think that what I've witnessed with you and your creative thinking and the way that you treat your staff with respect and you do good work for good people um, and the fact that your industry colleagues were 
calling you at a time of crisis in COVID and saying, actually, I get it now. I get all those conversations or all those requests that you've made to go digital and and make it more seamless. I get it now. Mm. And I know that's something that inspires me. And when I see you work, I'm just so inspired to see that that slow thinking that you've got, but when it is time, you've got everyone on board because of the way that you've conducted yourself and the way that you've proved your creative thinking. Mm. So, and, and to that end, I'm happy for my role and my influence. Like you've asked like, what, you know, what do you want my legacy to me? I don't need my name on things, but the things that I can influence for the better, if it makes people's lives better and it improves something for people, that's great for me. Yeah, it, I, it doesn't need to be that uh, Louise Morris did this and that's why we do this other thing. I'm very content to have had a role in a community, whether it's the legal profession or the property industry or my gym or the sport that my gym participates in or my children's lives or my children's friends, parents, like, you know, those, all those, these communities that we gather and that you become involved with. If I improve that or I help people, I'm happy for it to be simply that Louise really helped me with this. You should talk to her about it. That's the extent of the recognition is more than sufficient for me. I, I, I don't, I don't need my name on buildings. Yeah. Mm. I love that. Thank you for chatting to me today. Oh, thank you. Thank it's been, you. It's been such a treat. Thank you, Trish. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. That was so much fun. Um, but there's a point at which you need to turn around to your community and say, this is working. Mm. It's not appropriate or it's not going to be beneficial for me to innovate anymore before we share that knowledge. And that's actually what I'm trying to do next. It's very easy for people to say, I find it a lot, especially in the property industry or anyone who comes to me with needing a brand, like we do things differently. Yeah. And I go, well, there is a formula to selling a house. There's a formula to selling a retail product. And and it really comes down to how you make people feel. And I think that we're trying to say that we're different just by saying we do things differently, but at the end of the day, everyone's doing the same thing. I know we've spoken a lot about the things that you're doing on a level with your team and how you make them feel when they come to the office. But what is the actual difference that you are making and innovating in your field? Mm. That's a great question. There's, there's, there's heaps, there's heaps to talk about on that. One of the core aspects of our strategic thinking, our strategic planning, and our constant agenda item in our strategic planning is innovation. We've done a lot of innovation. I've talked about it a lot today about around how we work, how we deal with clients, building knowledge in our clients, how our team interact with the business. Um, there's also other things about how we operate like fixed fee pricing. So there's a lot to be said about, you know, leaving behind outdated or unproductive ways of working like time recording is, is is a great example. Tech augmentation to support the human part of the lawyer and make, make that really breezy, you know, specializing really deeply and using your networks, give your client the whole of a solution from a team of specialists across industry rather than having this idea that you're going to do everything yourself and be all things to all your clients. We, yeah, so we are really focused on that. I think what we've noticed now, we've been doing it for five years, this really particular way of practicing and investing in innovation and being brave. You need to be brave to innovate Mm. because it requires a lot of vulnerability. You need to be willing to fail and you need to be able to, dare I say, pivot 
<laughs> to recover from a failure. But what I've now noticed is that, you know, this constant drive to innovate without regard for sharing the learnings from our innovation, it potentially doesn't inspire innovation or change in the rest of the industry. So my current agenda item, I suppose, for innovation is to notice and share our learnings from our innovative practices and from the creative thinking that we have gone through and tested, not finding the next innovation, but letting the innovation be sharing and influencing other practitioners, other law firms, other, even in other knowledge workers, you know, other professions within knowledge work, like engineers, town planners, to say, no, this really works. You don't have to time record. You don't have to chain your staff to desks. Mm. I think there's also, um, when it comes to innovation, people hold on to their knowledge because they're worried that people are going to plagiarize it or Mm. they're going to overtake them and take credit for the work they've done. Mm. But I really like that approach of we've tried this. What do you think? Mm. Why don't you try it? We'll learn from each other. And then the rising tide will lift all ships. I know that's more of an accounting uh, finance term, but I, I think it applies just across everything, especially in the design industry as well. There used to be this real mentality of, I'm not going to tell you who my clients are because you might poach them. And mm. I'm not going to tell you that method we use to typeset because you might use it, get better at it, and then you'll take our clients. So everyone was just white knuckling, holding on to what belonged to them. But I, I really like what you're saying about the innovation that you're doing needs to be shared so that everyone can get better but then you can build on that innovation and keep building and keep building. And I partnered in a, who I really respect and they're at, an, at another law firm and we're having this discussion and they're in a different area of law from me as well, but they do practice in a similar, I'm across from their colleagues quite a bit. And, it, you know, they also made this comment that I was being worried that the changes and the innovations that I was making and the steps that I was making in my practice would be too disruptive or wouldn't be appreciated or accepted. And they said to me, well, this is, it's the legal profession is a very sharing profession. There's only a certain amount of ways to do things. We're all drawing from the same law. Mm -hmm. And in the end, Louise, you know, sitting on the shoulders of giants and all that. And every profession, I think, builds on and every industry builds on the knowledge that came before. So, you know, not apologizing for it, not being worried about it. And I look at other people's innovation, other firms' innovations. I'm really curious about it and thinking to myself, would that work for us? Is that is that an innovation for that area of law or that? kind of practice or that different industry or is it something that we can implement here? Can I share what I know with those people? Yeah, it requires a lot of vulnerability and curiosity. Yeah. Mm. And creativity and innovation doesn't happen in, in a vacuum as well. Yeah. So I think imagine if you were doing that in your silo and and you didn't take that chance to talk to a colleague and say, we saw what you were doing. We tried it. I have some notes. Are you open to talking about it? And then both of you are better Mm. or you're better because you've cross-referenced something. So Mm. I think like we were saying before, creativity needs collaboration and incubation, Mm. but you also need to take those blinkers off. I'm sure there's a lot of people in your industry who say, this is a way we've done it for the past 40 years. Yeah, yeah. Oh, broke, don't fix it. Yeah, there are consultants to law firms that say, look, it's worked for hundreds of years, just time record, because you always know. Mm, I think there are so many similarities, and this is why when we talk about big C creative and little C creative, um, people in your profession are very creative, but they don't label themselves as that. And I think that if we all recognised our creative superpowers 
and took those blinkers off and were open to opportunities that were coming to us. I think creativity is a word that should be sprinkled around a, a little bit more. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, I love I'm those. With that. Maybe my, my next hire will be, you know, I'll be looking for a creative thinker. I'll be looking for creative people. To put it in the ad. Is there somewhere as we finish up? that maybe our listeners, if they want to learn more about the firm or the work that you're doing as a thought leader in your industry, how can they find out more information about you? So you can find out things about me at louisemorris.com.au and my law firm in Canberra, Australia, the very proud national capital. We're a property firm. We do property transactions. We focus on construction, property development as well, big and small. You can find us at morrislegalgroup.com.au. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. That was awesome. Thanks for being a fly on the wall with my chat with Louise, the first in this podcast series. Her explanation of fast and slow thinking and her experience before and during COVID made me realise how much of that we all do in our everyday life. Whether it's researching which car to buy and then going to the car yard with a solid idea of how many cup holders you need, or deeply understanding your child so that you can make quick decisions in a time of crisis. It draws a huge comparison to those of us in the design industry who work with our clients to set solid brand foundations, only to be able to make decisions in accordance with our brand values when we're faced with hard conversations, hiring decisions and growth opportunities. After this first conversation, it seems to me that there's much less divide between traditionally artistic types and those who have missed out on this label because of industry stereotypes. I can't wait to bring you more conversations just like this one as we go on this creative journey together. If you learned something new today, remember it by telling a friend. Even better, share the whole podcast so they can listen in too. Subscribe where you love to listen to your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. So until next time, I'm Trish Johnston and you've been listening to Creative Bones. Creative Bones.